I'm looking at the clock there, and I'm realizing that this is the best napping hour of the day. And you've probably seen a lot of preachers up here with water, and I probably need, like, coffee. If you ever seen anyone with coffee, I bet that would be a new one. But I'm glad that you're here. We have a good crowd this afternoon, and I will do my best to try and chase away the napping demons, okay? Um, over 20 years of preaching, I've seen some amazing things from here to there. And I, I thought about people that have fallen asleep in the past or passed out or, or just the different things you do. So you get to see a lot of things. And uh, with that, I think I'll put my glasses on just because that way I can see all of it. But um, uh, I remember as a teenager growing up, there was a, another kid that was in our youth group, and he had fallen asleep on the back pew one time, Rodney Rogers, right over the back pew, and his head was back like this. His dad was one of our deacons, and he was, his dad was in the back doing some things. He saw Rodney, and he just walked right along, and he just whacked him on the side of the head, woke him up real quick. But uh, he wasn't happy that his son was sleeping in services, but uh, I remember because he jumped up, and uh, it was quite a commotion. That was the most I've ever seen anyone get woken up. But I've seen many, many women do this to their husband. And I've never had my feelings hurt if someone fell asleep because a lot of people are on medication. At least I like, I like to tell myself that. And uh, then, you know, it's just the hour of the day and everything else sometimes. I remember there was another fellow when I was preaching in West Tennessee who was a construction worker, Tommy Davis. And uh, he couldn't hear anything anyway because of all the noise of the machinery by the time he had gotten to a certain age. And he worked 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day. And I'm telling you that if Tommy stopped doing anything for five minutes, he was asleep. So I never felt bad about that. But I remember one time he was sleeping over here to my left. I, it's just like it was yesterday. It's about the same size building, maybe a little smaller even. And uh, a wasp came and landed on his glasses. Well, behind him was Bobby Coble. And Bobby's uh, son, Jonathan, now worships out of Sycamore. He's moved here, and he's, a, he's an optometrist here in town. But... Uh, his dad, Bobby, was behind Tommy, and he was trying to swat the, the, the wasp off. And it, before I knew it, no one was looking at me at all. There was no one, not even one person was looking at me. Everyone was watching the wasp and that trying to be, and whether or not Tommy was going to wake up. Um, so, I, in fact, I remember going, hello. <laughs> but... Um, Someone said, uh, you said something about hellfire and brimstone preaching. They said, I might need to bring some of that this afternoon or maybe some thunder and lightning or something. But um, I, don't think, I don't think we'll need that. But we'll, we'll be just fine. I'm, I'm glad to be here with you. And I hope that what I have to say today is helpful to you when we talk about leaving a legacy of faith for your children. I really feel unqualified to speak on it. I realize that I'm only 42, and I don't know everything, and there are a lot of you that are older than I am that know a lot more about faith and legacy and heritage, and you are more qualified to come up here and say about some of those things that you would want to charge to your family. You may notice that reading that we have, if you want to turn back over to 1 Kings chapter 2, those first three verses, this is the end of David's life, and so he makes this charge to Solomon and, and basically, we can just boil it down to him saying, if you want to leave a legacy of faith to your children, then you're going to do what God's asked you to do. Every single thing he's asked you to do, every one of his commandments, you're going to keep it. And as long as you do that, you can keep reading. There won't be 
any lack of one of your children to sit on the throne of Israel. Uh, there's a promise there that if we do things God's way, God is going to take care of us. And I believe that by faith, that's what we try to do. I have on the back of, of the building here um, on the table, there's something titled here, Family Legacies. And it was really for this particular lesson. Uh, it was actually written by Otis Ledbetter and Kurt Bruner about leaving a legacy to your family. And I, I'm not going to cover this material, but it's a good supplement to what I want to say. But it talks specifically about an emotional legacy, a social legacy, and a spiritual legacy. And the content of this is very, very strong and good. Um, there's a difference even between leaving a spiritual legacy for our, our children that is with regard to faith, uh, doctrine, uh, what we believe, being a part of the church, and the social legacy, which is, of course, how our, our family is going to function in society and relate to others. And then the emotional legacy he's talking about here is um, an enduring sense of security and stability nurtured in an environment of safety and love. Something else that's going on in our family is how we deal with problems or, or whether or not we understand what love is and, and how to receive that, how to give it back. Uh, how, how do we, just on a daily, every single hour of the day type of situation, live? We teach our, we teach our children how to do that. We, we teach them how to function in the world. And there are different ways in which we have responsibilities to do that. So please, if you want to grab one of those, pick that up, and I think it will be beneficial to you. Maybe you've heard of Jonathan Edwards. He was a preacher during the Great Awakening. If if you wanted to stay awake today, he'd be the guy to come and preach. He preached a sermon, very famous sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So gives you an idea of the type of preaching that he was engaged in. He and his wife Sarah lived in the 1700s in colonial America. And, of course, he did ministry and preaching and was a part of that time of our nation that was called spiritually the Great Awakening. They had 11 children. Um, his wife was very involved in his work. And they basically spent their entire lives together trying to leave a legacy for their families. Now, we could just look at some of his sermons and some of his work and historically see that he had an influence in our society in a spiritual sense. But there was a study done by Elizabeth Dodds um, and A.E. Winsip in 1900 in which they listed a few of the accomplishments of their children and grandchildren and so on. They did some, some studies. Now, think about it, 11 kids, and then those 11 kids, probably back then they had 11 kids or something like that. But this was 1,400 descendants that were followed. And here's what resulted. 100 lawyers and a dean of a law school, 80 holders of public office, 66 physicians, a dean of a medical school, 65 professors of colleges and universities, 30 judges, 13 college presidents, three mayors, three governors, three United States senators, a controller of the United States Treasury, and one vice president of the United States. All came from that family. That's pretty impressive. And yet, I would ask, how many of them were Christians? That, to me, would be the most important number. How many of them were faithful Christians of the Lord's church? So we have to ask ourselves, what kind of legacy 
are we going to leave to our children, to our families? Will it be lasting? Will it be imperishable and eternal? Or will we leave behind only tangible items, buildings and money and possessions? There's a difference, you see, between giving your kids an inheritance and giving them a heritage, giving them a legacy. So that's what I want to talk about this afternoon. I'm going to mention five quick things that I think we can do if we're going to leave the type of legacy that will live long beyond the time that we'll be leaving this earth. First of all, we need to have a healthy fear of God. Psalm 112, verses 1 and 2. Fearing the Lord and obeying God. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who's great, who greatly delights in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. It all begins with a healthy fear of God, fear of the authority of the scripture, and understanding that we are accountable every single day to the one who has created us. What did Solomon say at the end of it? He said, this is really the end of the matter. This is the whole of man to do what? Fear God and keep his commandments. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13. That's a pretty simple formula, and yet so many people fail to accomplish that. We decide that we are in charge. We decide that if it's something that we want to do, that maybe the commandments of God could be set aside for a moment so that we could go after the things that we consider the most important so it begins with a fear of God. My, my dad is now gone. He died a little over three years ago. It would be actually be four years in September. I can't believe it's been that long. But he, he left us very quickly without an announcement. And, of course, from the time that that took place, you think a lot about the heritage that your family leaves for you. And I remember in particular one time that we went up on a mountain together. Now, my dad and I used to... Uh, we lived in California, and when we moved up to the Central Valley, we would go sometimes up to Yosemite National Park. And then from there, you could drive a couple of hours, and you could drive into Tuolumne Meadows. And that's about 9,000 feet. There's a meadow between two huge rock bases. It's one of the most amazing things that you'll ever see. And it's only open for a couple of months out of the year because there's literally snow melt and snowfall there all year round. I took Amber up there July 7th, uh, 2000, uh, 1997, 2000. 1997, it's been a long time, and uh, that's where I proposed to her, and we were there at a lake, and July the 7th, there was snow, so it kind of gives you an idea, it's way up there, and we would go up into this 9,000 foot area, and then we would begin to hike up, and uh, you, there's not very much air up there, and we didn't take very many steps at a time before we stopped, and we had to get a breath, and you could feel that pounding in your head, have you ever felt that before at high elevation, and uh, we went up, and we spent some time fishing on the mountain lakes. And these are the times in which we spent the most of the day talking, talking about things with the family, talking about the future. We went up to the mountain of God, I guess you'd say. And I related that recently in an article about Abraham taking Isaac up to a mountain. Do you remember that? But that whole experience was not to go fishing, but it says that they went up to the mountain to worship God. Except the sacrifice, well, there was no sacrifice. And Isaac must have wondered as they went up the mountain, and Father, where's the sacrifice? And yet God had already decided that Isaac would be the sacrifice. And imagine 
this, this promise, this, pre, this precious child, this one that Abraham had waited 25 years for. He was promised Isaac at 75 in Genesis chapter 12. Isaac didn't come until he was 100. And now he's a teenager, a youth, and Abraham going up on the top of that mountain to tie up his son on an altar and sacrifice him to God. Can you imagine the conversation that changed from the time that they began to ascend that mountain to the time that they got to where that altar was furnished and then all of a sudden Isaac was being tied up by his own father? Don't you think he maybe asked, Dad, why are you doing this? I don't understand. Please don't do this. And think about the fact that Abraham got to the point. I mean, I have got three children sitting right over there. I just can't imagine this. Right here. And he was going to put that right through the heart of his child. Now, of course, we know that by the grace of God, the angel of the Lord spoke up and said, Abraham, don't do that. And we read on in Genesis chapter 22, and God says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, because you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So the ram was provided, the sacrifice was made, and they, they descended that mountain. But don't you think that at that moment, and for the rest of his life, that Isaac knew exactly what Abraham was all about. He knew that even at the sake of his own son's life, he was going to do the will of God. Can I submit to you something that our kids' lives are on the line every day? Every day. Their spirit and their soul is on the line every day. And the knife is stretched back to take their soul from them. And we've got to be willing to do the will of God in those moments. Sometimes our kids won't understand why. But they need to know that we fear God and we respect Him and we're going to do His will. And later on, they'll understand why. The second thing I think that we need to do if we're going to leave a legacy of faith for our kids is we're going to have to be compassionate. We're going to have to look out and we're going to see that there are other people that are in need. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, it says that Jesus had been looking out among the multitudes and he saw that they were weary and scattered as sheep without a shepherd. And it says that he felt compassion for them. And this word in the original language means that up in his gut, he was moved. In the very center of himself, he saw the needs of other people, and he felt sorry for them. Hopefully, your home is a home of compassion. Hopefully, you can have that kind of commitment to doing something about the needs of other people. See, a lot of Christians today are walking in the middle of the road. They're so focused on what people think that they're unwilling to take any risk in order to make some type of impact for Christ. I've seen the church turn inward instead of outward in my generation. I've seen the time in which we once had a plea in which we had all types of ministries that were reaching out to the community, trying to bring people into the church, trying to provide for the things that they needed both physically and spiritually, to the time now that, well, we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings and we don't want to take any risk, and, and it's good, of course, for us to focus on our individual families. But we also have to understand that there's a universal family that needs to be taken care of and that everyone needs the opportunity to, to know about Christ. And that's something that is going to be taught from the parents to the children. I can tell you right now, there is no way that I'm a preacher without the influence of my family. 
There's no way that I'm a preacher without what my grandfather did in mission work and that my, my parents are still uh, speaking to me through their example. The fact that my mom right now is in New Zealand conducting Bible studies with women in the church. I'm not saying that to toot my own horn. I, like I said, am not even qualified to talk about family legacy. I am who I am in a large part because of what my parents taught me. And it's just happened to stick with me. And I think that it will stick with our kids as well. The fact that you're here, for example, at 2 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon with your children, I commend you parents for being here when there are a lot of other things you could be doing. Ja Jamie Buckingham wrote this about Christianity today. The problem with Christians today is that no one wants to kill them anymore. Now, maybe would someone say, well, have you not been paying attention to all these people that strap themselves with bombs and do this? Two weeks ago today, I was right there in the place where the, the Boston bombing took place. I was standing right there. So I do know that people still want to kill other people today. And I know there's terrorists out there. And I know about the struggle with Muslim faith in America and, and all the other political things that are going on in our world. But in the first century, the Romans wanted to kill Christians. Everyone wanted to kill them. Because like it says in Acts chapter 17, when they came into Thessalonica, Paul and his companions were turning the world upside down. Today, maybe if there's someone that wants to eradicate Christians, they're just thinking of a concept of a name, but not an activity. What was trying to be squelched back in the first century was the work of the church and the spread of the gospel and the fact that they were making a difference I would submit to you that the reason why our country has left the Lord is because we, we lost our plea and we stopped trying to make a difference. We stopped speaking for what was right, and we allowed the pressures of society and the media and fitting into the mold of what the world would describe as right and good speak louder than Christianity has spoken. Because Christianity formed this country, at least the plea for it, the plea for open faith and an ability to, to have freedom to speak and to believe what the Bible teaches. This is a fact. This year, 30 million people will die without ever in their lifetime having heard the name of Jesus. 30 million people. Hundreds of millions more worship idols. But this year, 30 million people will have gone through lifetime on this earth and have never even heard the name of Jesus. Do you believe that? Maybe hard for you to believe that in a world in which we have all this technology and this social networking. But not long ago, when my mom was in New Zealand, she met with a, a Chinese lady um, who had moved there. A lot of the people in Asia have started to buy property in New Zealand and kind of use it as a vacation place or another place to move because, of course, the high population in China and Japan and other places, and now they're, they're moving out to other, other places and uh, my mom sat down for a Bible study with her. And when Jesus was brought up, the woman said, who is that? I've never heard that name before. Isn't that unbelievable? This lady was probably in her 30s. But I'm telling you, this is the state of the world in which we live. When you fly over rows of houses in a plane, do you wonder how many people in those homes know Jesus? Someone needs to reach these people with the good news. And we have to decide that we're going to be the ones to do that. If we were honest with ourselves... We probably don't even go through our own neighborhoods anymore and invite people to worship. So it's something that we have to do is have compassion. Have compassion not only on the lost, but the people of your community 
And I hope that your, your parents and your grandparents are the kind of people that shared their things with others. A third thing that I think we should do if we're going to leave a legacy of faith for our families is pray that God will use us to accomplish his will. Not just pray, but pray that God will use us. Now, we're really good at praying, I think, around the supper table. Or maybe when we go to the restaurant, we eat out in public, we may pray. We may pray and teach our children to pray before bedtime or before they leave for school. And they may see us regularly pray together in our home or, of course, in the church. But how often do we pray with the intention that God is going to make us do something that's not comfortable for us? Here was the prayer of Jabez in 1 Chronicles chapter 4 and verse 10. O Lord, that thou would bless me indeed and enlarge my border, that your hand might be with me and that you might keep me from harm. What was he asking God to do? To bless him, but also to enlarge the turf that he was walking on. Enlarge his sphere of influence so that he could do more work for God. To keep him from temptation. To stay with him. We need to be praying this in our families. Pray this for your spouse. Pray for your spouse that while she's at work, God is going to give her an opportunity to do something at work. Or while she's there with the children or through her friends, that God will enlarge her sphere of influence. Pray for your husband that when he's at work, or wherever he is in his friendships, that somehow he'll be able to do something for God. I wonder how many times we have prayed with the idea that we want God to challenge us. You know what I find us doing? I find us wanting God to protect us and to shelter us in a little bubble so that we're not challenged, so that we don't have to ever fear anything, so that uh, we don't ever suffer any type of persecution or temptation or problem. Well, here's the thing. It's in those temptations, and it's in those problems, and it's in those challenges that we grow, and only in those times that we grow. We have to have enough faith to climb that mountain when God wants us to climb it. In fact, maybe even to pray for it, like Caleb said, give me this mountain so that we can be better servants for God. If you've never been challenged in your faith, I'm going to guess that your faith may not be very strong. So we have to ask God not only to be with us and to help us and to bless us, but also that he might give us the strength to accomplish his purposes, his will. You can read in Judges chapter 13 about a wife who is, God appears to her in a vision and says, you're going to bear a son and this son's going to be given to the Lord. And then this wife goes to her husband Manoah and she says, God has appeared to me through a vision. And then later the angel of the Lord comes and appears to them both. And they tell about this young man that they're going to have as a child. His name was Samson, you remember. And all the kids remember he's the guy with all the muscles. right? He's the guy who pulled the gate and put it on his back and walked down the road. And the one that tied up 300 foxes and the one who pushed the pillars down. But, you know, this all started with his family in that they decided that they were going to have him keep a vow before God. And that as long as he kept that vow, he would be strong and he would do God's will. We need to commit the idea that our children are going to take a vow, that they're going to make a promise to God and they're going to keep it, and we're going to do everything within our power and our mind to, to help them keep it. A fourth thing that we need to do if we're going to leave a legacy of faith for our, our families, for our children, is we're going to help our mate be a better steward 
of their gifts, their abilities. Help your spouse recognize how God has used his gifts and abilities in the past to serve others, to teach, to advise in some type of Christian ministry. The question is, as a husband and wife, are you teammates for God? Are you teammates for God? A while back, there was a couple that was, uh, that was dating in the church, and uh, Amber and I try to kind of mentor some of these folks. They don't know that, um, that people think that my wife and I have the perfect marriage. Um, there's no such thing as a perfect marriage. It's a work in progress. And uh, luckily, she's not kicked me out yet, all right? But although I've given her many reasons to do that. But uh, sometimes these younger couples look to us. And there was one couple in particular, two very strong Christian people that had become engaged. And uh, they were going through a hard time. And one of the things that we told them was, you know, Satan probably doesn't want you to get married. You know why? Because when you get married, you are going to be a power couple for the Lord. You're going to do his work. He's trying to get in between you right now. And sometimes these things happen. But are we helping our mate? To be, as a, as a team member, a powerful Christian for the Lord. We are a team. Amber and I are a team. Uh, the best things that we do, we do together. I'm not capable of doing anything ministry-wise without her help. In fact, this week, everyone gives me all these prayers and thanksgiving, and, and I get a whole lot of credit. But I'm telling you right now, the backbone of our family is my wife. And she does all the work, all the hard work, and I get to stand up in front of people and, and people shake my hand. But there's no way that I'm a Christian, the, as a, a strong Christian, there's no way I'm a father the way that I need to be. There's no way that, that I'm the preacher that I need to be without her help and assistance. And I guarantee you that for every one of you that's a spouse, you absolutely need the support of your spouse in order to be successful. Every single day, things that the kids need Every single day, things that you need, things that we take for granted. One of the reasons why families are falling apart is because we take our spouses for granted. And we don't tell them enough how much they're appreciated. And then we don't allow them to develop in ways that they can serve the church. Sometimes, even as a, preacher's, as a preacher and a preacher's wife, I could tell you that it would be very easy for her to have animosity towards me when I'm doing the Lord's work. Because I'm not at home. Or it would be easy for me because she dedicates so much time to uh, teaching Bible classes and doing ladies' days like she will next week that I could say, well, where's my wife? And I wish she'd come home because my son has a bloody nose and my, my daughter, she's got problems with her ears right now because of her newer earrings, and I don't know how to do that because I'm a dad and I'm dumb. <laughs> but you know what? I'm going to tell you something. You learn by doing. And when you go through those experiences, you realize how great it is to be a father. So allow your spouse to mature and to thrive in the Lord. When they decide to do something spiritual, you support it. And you make sure that you bring out their very best for God. That's how you'll leave a legacy of faith. Because your children will find out, they will see that the most important things to you are spiritual things. And those things will just follow through as time goes on. So help your mate to become a better steward of the gifts and abilities they've been given by God. And make sure you support them in what they do. Think about the difference between Ananias and Sapphira and Aquila and Priscilla. A big difference. Which couple would you rather be? All right, the final thing I want to say this afternoon, and I don't think anyone slept any, so good job.
Pray for your children that God will give them a sense of purpose, direction, and mission. The challenge here is to leave your children a heritage, like I said, not just an inheritance. Someone once said this, Our children are messengers we send into a time that we will never see. Our children are messengers that we send into a time that we never see. It's very easy for us to be concerned about the here and now. We could say, well, the church is doing okay right now, so I'm not really going to care about what the church is doing 30 years from now or 60 years from now. Or we could say, well, you know, America is just going right down the chute, but at least I won't be here to see it. You know, that is so selfish. I can't think of a more selfish attitude that we could ever have. You look at the Old Testament, why did people fall away from God? Because every single time people failed to lead, as soon as those people died, the people fell away. So right now in our pews are the future leaders of the church. Right now. The ones that are 5 and 10 and 15. And if we're not developing them, then we're sinning before God. We're telling him that his church is not important to us enough that the souls of the future are going to have an opportunity to hear the message. So I appreciate, I hope you guys know, I appreciate every single Bible class teacher. Do you know that sometimes that the strength of a congregation is found at the kindergarten level and the second grade level? Do you know that the best teaching I ever received in the church was like in third grade Bible class of a woman, uh, Ginger Baber was her name, who spent so much time preparing Bible class for me so that I had meat, not just milk, to grow on. I didn't just learn about the rainbow and Moses every third week. No, she taught me about all the different things I could find in the Bible. And by the time I went to, to preacher school or biblical school, it was just like I was doing a review. I mean, it was awesome. I would like to think that by the time our kids get into adult Bible classes, they're not hearing stuff for the first time. We have a responsibility to them. And sometimes I'm amazed about how many people were raised in the church and then they'll come to me about a, a sermon that I preached and they said, I've never heard that passage before. I've never heard that scripture before or that thought before. And to me, I would think, well, that's almost fundamental, fundamental stuff. So we need to be teaching our kids. And the way that we do that is we give them a sense of purpose and direction and mission. We tell them right now that they are the future leaders of the church. Whenever you have a young men's day when they come up and they preach or they preside, Every single member of the church should be in line wanting to shake their hand and tell them that they're doing a great job. I don't think that there's anything more exciting or impressive than a young person standing before a group of people leading the scripture, singing a song. Isn't that, isn't that inspirational to you when you see that? Isn't that exciting? We have a program at, at Willow Avenue uh, called Lads the Leaders. Now, a lot of congregations all over the South do that, but just back on Easter weekend, on the Friday and Saturday of Easter weekend, there was about 10,000 people. There were about 10,000 people in the Opryland Hotel with their children, both boys and girls, teaching them how to be future leaders in the church. And I believe that we have to do things like that if we're going to expect results. We can't just think that all we've got to do is show up at worship services and someone's going to open up the building and someone's going to make sure the temperature's right and someone's going to, you know, organize the service and someone's going to teach Bible class. And then one day our children are going to be strong Christians. Don't you dare think that. You have responsibility in your home, in your home alone,
to teach your children the Bible. The reason why I'm a Christian today is because my parents didn't just rely on the people at church to teach me the Bible. They decided that I was going to know it and I was going to practice it. And I thank them for that. And I wish I could tell my dad thank you for that. So that's how we leave that legacy. We do it by making some commitments and doing some things that are difficult, challenging each other. And, and in the middle of all, I want to just make you be reminded that the reason why we're motivated to do all these things is because of love. We've met today three times. People have met all over the world today for one reason, because Jesus died and because he rose again and because he went through such a cruel experience on the cross for us. He literally allowed basically every drop of blood in his body to be shed so that you and I could live eternally one day and only for the potential of it. He died for the people that would never even recognize his name or know it. And he died for me, and he died for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that we, we are compelled or constrained by the love of Christ, for we consider that if one died, then all died, so that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. Paul said it this way in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Being a part of a family is a great blessing. I hope that you can, as we conclude, just for a moment, think about your parents. Think about your grandparents. Think about your aunt or your uncle or anybody in your life that ever brought you closer to the Lord through their example and thank God for them. And then with that in mind, think about your responsibility for the future. If you are a child of God today, it is because somebody invested in you enough to teach you the gospel. You have that same responsibility to those who are walking in your footsteps. Well, this, this afternoon, I quickly want to ask you the question, are you a child of God? At the end of every service, we'll have an invitation, just like we're going to have now, just to invite you to be a, a member of the body of Christ if you're not. The reason why we can talk about all these things and be excited about all these things is because we are a part of the family of God. Remember 1 John 3 and verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. We are loved, and God wants us to be a part of his family. And if you're not in it, then there's no way that heaven will be your home. Only those who are in the family of God, the church, are going to spend eternity with God one day. We have to be a part of his spiritual family if we're going to be in his eternal family. Are you a child of God? If not, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I hope that you do believe. Would you repent of your sins and confess his name? Would you be immersed in water for the remission of your sins and let him allow you to be a part of his family. Or if you are a part of the family, do you need prayers? Do you need strength? Do you need to make the recommitment to make sure that you're leaving a legacy of faith for your family? Whatever your need is, if we can help you in any way, we invite you to make that known while together we stand and sing the invitation song.